From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. My guests are Paula Broussard and Lisa Royer, and they are the authors of a wonderful new biography, Eleanor Powell, Born to Dance. This book really brings Eleanor Powell to life on the page, and it'll send you seeking out some of the greatest musical numbers ever captured on film. Paula Broussard and Lisa Royer, welcome to From the Bookshelf. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for having us, Gary. Um, so uh, tell us, and we'll try to uh, let our listeners know which of you is speaking, but okay. uh, tell us uh, the origin story of this book, because you guys have been working on it for a long time. Yes, we started uh, over 40 years ago, actually, <laughs> and we um, noticed that there wasn't anything written at all on Eleanor Powell, and we were very interested in her work. Uh, so we started a project at that time, but we shelved it for a long time and picked up um, our project during the pandemic. And it changed from a f- simple films of book, which we started out with at the origin, to a full-fledged biography. Well, no, that was Lisa speaking. So Lisa and Paula, how did you, um, how are you guys connected to um, each other as well as to Eleanor Powell? Uh well, uh, we've been friends, uh, for a long time. We, um, met when we were uh, 18 years old and, um, we were also fortunate to meet Eleanor Powell that year. It was, uh, right when uh, That's Entertainment came out. So we were extremely fortunate. Um, we discovered, uh, Eleanor's dancing in that film and were just astounded. And, um, uh, Lisa and I had this idea, um, to do this, uh, and, we met her. Um, so that's part of the origins of the book. Um, well, uh, how did you come to meet her? Uh, she was uh, making an appearance at a local little uh, theater in uh, Hollywood um, as a result of the publicity from that's entertainment. Uh, the theater had some retrospective showing of old films and uh, they did a birthday celebration for her and invited her. So um we uh, found out about it, uh, went and met her and kind of, as you say, the rest is history. <laughs> well, I grew up in Southern California and I loved the revival theaters. Uh, down mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to see all the great, you know, in the pre-video era to see all the great movies on the big screen. I went yes. to the, the Vagabond Theater was one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yes. Actually, uh-huh. Well, this is the Gary, the Gary Theater, if you remember uh, that. I do. That was a mm-hmm. wonderful yeah, yeah, I love those theaters. And there was a silent movie house right around the corner. Yes, on Fairfax. Yeah. 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 And I loved it. So I, I feel fortunate to have seen so, so many of the great films mm-hmm. uh, in, on the big screen. And that's how they're, you know, meant to be seen without an audience. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So- I was thinking this morning, um, my first introduction to old films was actually through That's Entertainment. And I think the fact that I saw it in a theater on a big screen had a huge impact on me. Um, and it was, it was just like overwhelming and wonderful. And that's where I discovered Eleanor because I had never heard of her before, <laughs> never mm-hmm. seen anything. And when I saw her, I, I said, Oh my goodness, who is that? Yeah. Um, I love that she had a ballet background. You could tell and her dancing was different from anybody else I had ever seen. Yes, she has a very distinctive style where she, um, uh, you describe it in the book, so maybe I'll ask you to describe it now. It's something <laughs> about the way her body is weighted. You know, she's sort of 
she doesn't move in the same way that other dancers move. No, they taught her when when she was studying ballet. Of course, everything is very lifted and aerial and pulled up. But uh, when she started tap dancing, she had to do the exact opposite. And when she learned, they put uh, her teacher to correct her aerialness, as she called it, put um, a utility belt with two sandbags on her sides and taught her to tap. And she said that that's why she was tapping so low to the ground. And if you look at her footwork, it is very different in that respect. And that's why. It's, it, it, it is remarkable. And she was, is really peerless in terms of, uh, I think, tap dancers, uh, especially female tap dancers. I mean, if you look at Ruby Keeler, which I'd rather not actually, but if you look, I love Ruby Keeler. <laughs> but if you, if you look at Ruby Keeler, there's something about her that's terribly awkward. I mean, it's sort of the part of yeah. the charm of Ruby Keeler. And uh, uh, Joan Crawford, who was kind of known <laughs> as a dancer, she's a terrible dancer. The way she moves is very... Um, it's very clunky. Yeah. 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 But um, it's so natural the way um, uh, Eleanor Powell does it. And she makes it look so easy. But of course, I learned in your book that it was very, very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she put a lot of hours in to make it look easy. Uh, tell me a little bit about, you said that she started uh, in, in ballet. Did she have a stage mother? Was her mother the one who was pushing her into show business or how did that work out? Um, well, her mother Blanche um, encouraged her and uh, initially took her to dance lessons to uh, help her shyness. Eleanor was extremely shy and, um, you know, wouldn't talk to people, uh, hid behind her mother when, you know, strangers would come to the house or whatever. And so uh, friends told her mother, um, why don't you take her to dancing school? You know, that might help her. And so that's basically the initial motivation. They didn't have a lot of money. They were very poor. And um, so it was a big expense to consider. Um, but the minute that Eleanor went to dance class, she just immediately identified with it. And, uh, you know, they, they saw that it was very, very much helping her and uh, helped her bring her out of her shell. Well, was she from upstate New York? Is that right? Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Springfield. Uh-huh. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> and, so, um, um, yeah. So what, um, So it was just to help her out of her shyness. Right. Did, did her teachers uh, immediately see something in her that said, oh, you know, she's better? They, than they, um, they did. And this was the ballet and acrobatic kind of style that she was doing. She didn't do any tap uh, at that point. Um, and they did recognize her um, as someone that had a great deal of potential and just mm-hmm. uh, something about her. Um, and... Uh, that's what allowed her mother to say, you know, I'm going to have, I'm going to keep, you know, the lesson was only a dollar a week, which doesn't sound like much now, but in uh, those years, 19, you know, 19, 1920, that was a lot. And um, she decided it was worth it. And uh, she kept going. And so she, when she was a teenager is when uh, tap dancing entered her life. Yes. Yes. She went to, uh, they went to Atlantic city. And um, Eleanor started, uh, she was discovered there on the beach and and started doing some nightclub performances. And um, uh, this, again, no tap yet. It's all the kind of lyrical acrobatic style. 
Um, she was 12. I'll throw it over to Lisa. Go ahead. Yeah, she was 12 when she was discovered on the beach. And for the next few years, she stayed in Atlantic City until some of the people who were coming into some of those nightclubs, like Jack Benny, Eddie Cantor, and, and the like, said, hey, you know, you should try your luck in New York. So she was actually 15 when she, uh, I think, she, well, she was not quite 15 right. uh, when she made it, uh, when they moved to New York and decided to give it a try. And she lasted for several months but then it became evident that she wasn't going to get any jobs if she didn't tap because mm-hmm. that was the style that was becoming very, very popular at the time. And uh, I'll go back to your question about Blanche <laughs> being a stage mother. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to say that they are super close in age. Ellie was born when Blanche was three days before Blanche's 17th birthday. Right. And she Eleanor always said that her mother was more like a big sister to her. Mm-hmm. And she ha- she was very lucky to to be raised by her grandparents and her mother in that home unit um, because the father wasn't around. And so Blanche was sort of her partner more than a stage mother, I would say. And they uh, and they were close. Very close. For, yes. For the rest of her mother's life. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, extremely close. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's an interesting uh, part of the story. So, at what point uh, you you uh, you talk talk a little bit about the efforts to exploit her all pretty much throughout her whole career by various men? And there's a, a picture in your book of her, and I guess <laughs> she's still a teenager there, and she's just barely covered with a cloth. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, a John Demergian. Yes. So that was like standard procedure is to try to get them as naked as possible as soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it was very much done for the Ziegfeld girls, all of the kind of showgirl. If you, if you look, there's so many photos of those in the programs of the day. And um, it was kind of uh, accept, expected of uh, dancers to take those kinds of photos. And this photographer was the top person to do these. He was very well, well known. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, we, we came across that photo, um, as well as another one in the same series that we, that we had, and then delved into the story behind it, which is well, really interesting. I, uh, I'm interested in the research that you did. How did you go about uncovering all the information about Eleanor Powell? <laughs> well, yeah, we can both kind of share it, it. It was, it was a monumental task, um, a lot of detective work, uh, a lot of, um, you know, many, many sources, um, newspaper sources, uh, archives, hunting for various associated people that she worked with um, mm-hmm. in their collections in universities. Um, there are, you know, very few people still alive that worked with her, yeah. although we did speak with a few um, still and um it, you know, I, Lisa can continue on how much more we did. <laughs> well, in the beginning, we didn't have anything digitally. So yeah. it was hit the Academy of Library um, Arts and, uh, of Arts and Sciences. The, you know, it's now called the Margaret Herrick Library. And so we go there in person. We went to the archives at USC and then and to the regular libraries and try and find everything we could. And we had a really 
good foundation. And then we come back all these years later, everything's online. And -hmm. because it was during the pandemic, there was another resource that was online and available, which isn't any longer available, where we could get magazines, newspapers from all of these cities. And so it was amazing. It was so, it was fun and, but hard, (laughs) tedious work at the same time to just go digging in into these uh, archives, and we discovered a lot that we didn't actually know before. Yes, to find contemporary reviews and things of that nature. All yes, from all eras, I think. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But to be able to access the newspapers of the time in uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, or whatever, yeah. you yeah. know, um, we it was hard to do that back in the, back in the day. You had to write to the library and ask them to look it up for you on microfilm and and then they send you these awful copies and but this time you know <laughs> you could just access it easily and and right. so sometimes one thing led to another and we completed our we started with a timeline and we filled it in with all of this information that we were discovering and it was uh very it was fun well it, uh, and, yes oh. I was going to throw in really quick that we were also extremely fortunate to be able to access the MGM um, files about her. Um, uh, Amazingly, I I worked there for five years. And during that time period um, was a a bit of the time when we started working in the book or Mm -hmm. continued. Um, And uh, I, you know, extended a question and they allowed us to come and uh, open those files to us, which we could not get those today. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we don't, we don't know where those are today, but luckily we were able to come in and, and photocopy all of those, um, which was a tremendous resource. So um, you, you were, you were, uh, you were like Daniel Ellsberg copying the pen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess if you look at it that way, yeah. <laughs> well, it was pretty amazing because, yeah. um, Paula was at work, but I went in there for a week mm-hmm. and they said, uh, I would ask for the different files. They'd bring them. And they said, photocopy whatever you want. So yeah. I made yeah. two copies of everything. Yeah. And yeah. we kept it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, well, that was very fortunate that that happened. Yeah. Yes, it was. And we also had the advantage of having Ellie uh, as a friend. Yes. Yes. And her, uh, she shared several stories and and things that she didn't share in regular interviews. And some of those are in the book too. So you didn't just meet her. You actually became friends and hung out. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I I only knew her for about two years, but Lisa continued on um, and, and knew her very well. And so, like she said, we were able to incorporate those things, which we, um, we accessed, you know, in our memory and we were able to put together, you know, uh, like uh, pull from that and, and, uh, hopefully that worked, uh, you know, and and helped people when they're reading. Now, there are a couple of things uh, in, in your book, stories that you tell. I should say we're talking with Paula Broussard and Lisa Royer, and their book is called Eleanor Powell, Born to Dance, a wonderful biography of a wonderful dancer and actress and singer, Eleanor Powell. You, you tell some stories that you don't have a conclusion for it, like... Um, at some point, she had a sister, maybe, or something. Oh, Betty that was, was yeah, big mystery. Yeah. <laughs> I well, wish 
that Ellie were alive, so we could yeah. ask her about <laughs> it. But we yeah. we uncovered this adopted daughter, but she was more like the age of a sister, and she she was in a few magazine articles and in the press, but for a very brief period of time. Mm-hmm. But she's a mystery, and we don't know. We tried to find out what happened to her and who she was really. And yeah. Yeah. And we, we really couldn't, but we thought the story was interesting enough to include in the book yeah. anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> but you, the, she's too old to have been Eleanor's daughter. Yes. yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We we went through a whole bunch of many, uh, a list of scenarios. We tried to be open to whatever, but nothing seemed to fit. And it was, we, but we was too intriguing to leave out of the book. We thought, you know, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, some people do kind of disappear from the story and I I can tell you guys were looking for them, but you didn't find them. (laughs) Nope. Maybe somebody will read the book and they'll know. Yeah. I doubt it. (laughs) It's an interesting book. I mean, I think that there are a lot of people today who um, don't know Eleanor Powell, just as you didn't in 1976. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so it's wonderful that this book is here to, um, enlighten people about her and because nowadays pretty much everything you can find uh you know either on dvd or blu-ray or i think all of her films are out there yes yes and 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 that's that's great um what i mean my i'll tell you what my two favorite things are of hers and then you can tell me what your favorites are so (laughs) the dance that she does with buttons the dog (laughs) in lady be good that Uh is the most wonderful sequence it's so First of all, it's beautifully filmed, and it looks like it was filmed yesterday. She's the way she's dressed; she's wearing the most. Yes, yeah. Those wonderful pants. Yeah, everybody yeah. loves that outfit. Yeah, <laughs> oh, and, and and she and she's the most natural I think that she ever is on film, and she's really seems like a real person that's just having a good time with her dog. Now, um, and I learned in your book that she that wasn't her dog, but they had a professional dog they were going to use, and that dog was no damn good so they got this right dog. Yeah, they fired him <laughs> right <laughs> yeah wing yeah. wing yeah <laughs> and so she took this dog home and she how, how did that work out she trained right him? she said that she she took him home to live with her for six weeks and she trained him at home and there's a rumor going around that it was shot in her living room because but that's false oh. i mean it's obvious that it's false because those cameras were so big that they couldn't have fit in and the lights and everything at the time that this is not possible. Anyway, she took him obviously back to MGM to her little um, dance studio that she had there. And she worked with him and, and he loved, she said he loved, he was such a ham whenever they were (laughs) getting ready to perform. He would just tremble all over because he was so excited. (laughs) He couldn't wait to dance with her. Is there somebody off screen who was directing Buttons or Buttons just knew those tricks? I think it was a cue from her. Yeah, but her, she had developed those cues. It's such a cute thing. Uh, And and, she launched his career. He ended up in the Emperor Waltz with Bing Crosby. Right. (laughs) It's pretty great. Uh, It's shot in an odd way. I mean, it's just interesting. Um, it's you know like most of her dances it's pretty much done in one or two takes there's only a couple of cuts mm-hmm. but there's some odd angles from like behind a couch or behind a chair or something mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's because he was coming and bouncing and, you know, leaping yeah. over things and. Right. To cover just, everything. Uh-huh. I just yeah. love that. And, and of course, I think her greatest moment on film is her pairing with Fred Astaire in, uh, in the Broadway Melody of 1940 when they do Begin the Begin. Yes. And in your book, you said that Fred Astaire had forgotten making it when he saw it. Yeah. That's a quote we, we yeah. found. <laughs> Amazingly, um, yeah, and it, years later, and he was talking about um, seeing that in That's Entertainment, and he talked about there's a number he, you know, and he di- didn't really remember. I, I don't know what that was about. That's very odd. Isn't he, it? he must have remembered the film. Maybe he didn't remember yes. the exact details of the the dance, but. Yeah, it's hard to. Imagine. I mean, I'm it's sure. Hard to fathom yeah. that, though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know Astaire did a lot of pictures and a lot of great uh, sequences, but that one just is tops. Yeah, and it's got to be memorable since they were dancing on mirrors that they were um, had to be very careful not to crack. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so why wouldn't you remember that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> when when Eleanor is tap dancing, the sounds of her taps are dubbed in afterwards. Yes. By her, yes. Yes. By her. She, yes. yes, which is not always the case with dancers in on film. Uh, so she said there were three uh, stages to the the whole thing where she would, when the, when the orchestra was recording their part, she would be on a mat in ballet slippers and she would dance to give them the tempo because the mm-hmm. tempo had to be her tempo. And so she would do that. And then uh, they would shoot the film silently. And then, well, you know, they'd be piping in the music, obviously, so they could hear. But they weren't recording sound. They were not recording sound. And so then, no. and and then no later. And no tap shoes on set. Yeah. No, right. No tap shoes. Um, so they'd, she'd go into uh, the sound room later and the 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 film would be on, on a screen and she'd have earphones and she'd dub the taps at that time. And so in the number that she does with a stare, is a stare in there with her dubbing his taps while she's dubbing her taps? That's a good question. I don't really I, know the answer yeah, to it. It's possible they did it separately. but Or it's um, possible that uh, we think he did it, but it's true that later on there were other, like, uh, uh, I know for Gene Kelly, sometimes Jeannie Coyne dubbed his taps. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so you had I mean, to do some... it with your feet. You couldn't just like hit a hammer with a thing. No. Or... Oh no, no. It was <laughs> no. actual steps. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, so. uh, aspects of filmmaking are so interesting. Uh, <laughs> also, um, Eleanor Powell sang in her films, and often her voice was dubbed, but not every time. Right in the beginning, um, they. I think the in MGM's quest for perfection and they were uh, banking a lot on this new star that they were creating with Broadway Melody of 1936. I think they kind of went overboard and they decided to have Marjorie Lane do the dubbing. Um, But it was kind of funny because at the same time that that picture premiered on Broadway, uh, like the next day she was opening in at home abroad on Broadway where she was actually singing and then within a few weeks, she was making records with Tommy Dorsey where she was singing. Oh, so, <laughs> so and and how was her singing? Um, she has a pleasant voice. She's not a trained singer, but it was fine. I mean, when you look at Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, they don't have no, you know, yeah. 
extraordinary voices. And anyway, so um, Ellie was dubbed up until Rosalie when she sang for the first time on her own. Well, let's listen to one of those uh, recordings. Here's Eleanor Powell singing and dancing. Got a brand new, got a brand new tie, got a brand new wrinkle in my eye. Do you know the reason why I got a brand new girl and I won't be you? She's the reason I got a brand new tie and a brand new Gary Shapiro, this is From the Bookshelf, and we're talking tonight with Paula Broussard and Lisa Royer, and they are the authors of Eleanor Powell, Born to Dance. The one thing that uh, I have to say disturbed me about your book, and I'm sure it was even more disturbing to Eleanor, uh, I'm a big I'm a big fan of Glenn Ford. I love Glenn Ford. <laughs> one of my favorite actors. And um, he was not nice. He was not a nice guy. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, yeah, there there were some challenging things in that marriage um, that she dealt with. Um, and uh, it, yeah, it's, it, it, it does uh, shed some light and insight on Glenn Ford, a different aspect of his personality. Um, mm-hmm. But we felt that, um, you know, we, it, it was important to share the reality um, without focusing on it. But, um, you know, it, it's uh, it was a what she had to go through and and what was the reality of her, and uh, mm-hmm. it, she just emerges victorious. That that's what is the great thing is she emerges out of that experience, and uh, is an inspiration, you know. Uh, what 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 became of their son Peter? 
Oh, well, he's, he's still around. Yeah, he's still around. Yeah, <laughs> he did yeah. a book on Glenn. Um, uh, I think in, in 2011. 2011. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And and did he? Uh, uh, participate in the writing of this book? He did not. No. Uh, did he not? Did he say no? I don't want he, to do. That, or did you not? Didn't know? really say anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he shared with our um, editor that he was uh, declining. Um, and again, it's it's through no personal. Uh, we, we you know we know him. We've been friendly with him in the past. There's mm-hmm. nothing uh, negative between us. He just uh, felt like at some point he might do his own book, and so. You know, he he just felt, you know, better to keep that to himself. Um, Yeah. And in a way, it's kind of better for us because we were free to just do our research and mm -hmm. discover what we discovered. And and he said a lot of helpful things in his own book that, you know. Right. Well, uh, ageism is a, a, a fact of Hollywood in terms of actresses. I mean, it's okay to be Fred mm-hmm. Astaire. Then you can continue to dance with Audrey Hepburn. As the older, yeah. the older Fred Astaire got, the younger his <laughs> partners got. Yeah, yeah. Or you That's could true. be, you can be Clint Eastwood. He's like 110. He's still making. <laughs> yeah. But if, but if you're 35, you know, you're pretty much done if you're an actress in in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes the story of her. Um, Las Vegas uh, comeback so exciting. She was yeah. still not old. I mean, by any standard, she was under right. fifty. But mm-hmm. and I think today people wouldn't even think twice about that. But uh, that was pretty amazing what she did. It was, yeah, yeah. it was and, definitely amazing. Yeah. yeah, and and to hear that uh, what she put herself through to make that comeback because she had such high standards for herself. She did not want to come back unless she was, she felt she was at the level that she left the screen at, which is so impressive. Um, And, you know, technically, I think she, in some ways, she was better from the films that we saw, we saw Yeah, uh, her freedom and her, her footwork. And I mean, it, it's astounding. You know, she was incredible. So there are films of her Vegas performance. Um, there's some film at the Academy Library, yes. It was her, her film. Yeah, her film, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, neat. With yeah. sound or not? With sound. Um, yes. Oh, yes, the Las Not Vegas. great sound, but yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. it's there, yeah. Well, of course, that's an ephemeral kind of uh, performance. And in a period, yeah. the kind of the most exciting period of that city's uh, history, I think. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. The only thing mm-hmm. was that she was challenged by... The fact that tap dancing had gone out of style. Mm-hmm. So not only did she have to remake herself, get in shape, took her nine months to do so, and put this whole show together, but she had to tailor it so it would be acceptable and interesting to the audience of the day. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were people who had seen her films, but not all of them, you know. Mm-hmm. So she had to be relevant and she succeeded. <laughs> well, uh, Paula Broussard and, and Lisa Rare, one of the subtexts in your book, Eleanor Powell, Born to Dance, is that throughout her life, I mean, she started, you know, quite young, there was like, she was prey to all kinds of possible exploitation, whether it was uh, posing in scantily clad clothing or somebody wanting to use her name for something or getting her to invest in something or <laughs> religious cult. And 
And she pretty much stands up to a lot of it. Uh, yeah. Which is pretty great. Yeah, considering she was sort of so, well, so shy as a youngster um, and just kind of innocent for most of her time on Broadway, her her mother dealt with everything and all Ellie concentrated on was dancing. Um, when she came across Louis B. Mayer, for example, who told her she couldn't eat in the commissary with somebody who wasn't of a high ranking status she spoke up to him and that's pretty amazing. Right. He said, I'll eat with anybody I want or what? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She right. said, you can, um, I'll work harder than anybody else in the studio, but you cannot tell me who I'm going to eat lunch with. It's mm-hmm. amazing. And uh, she did a television show that you talked about, uh, a, a, a non-musical religious television mm-hmm. show, local television. Yes. And, um, yes. and she had children on this show. It was like a Sunday mm-hmm. school show. And mm-hmm. she had both, uh, African-American and white kids sitting mm-hmm. together in a uh, which of course again today nobody would think twice of but uh, in 19 whatever it was 19, 1955 55. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and, and she, she got a lot of resistance from people on that oh yeah and, and you know that's uh, 1955 is the year that um, I was listening to one of your earlier interviews with the um, author of the king Biography, yeah. and that's the year you know that's mentioned in December '55 about um, the uh, uh, march and everything. And so when you put it in that context, and you look at you know here is this uh, person you know showing you know children of both races on screen. That was a huge thing um, that she stood fast and would not uh, give in to change. Mm-hmm. Well, um, now, Lisa, when you were uh, uh, friends with her, or how, you know, you, you hung out with her for a few years. Mm-hmm. How, how did you find her? What kind of a person <laughs> was she? Oh, she was, she was like a, she was so nurturing. She was like a, a mother to me. Um, she was warm. She was funny. She was just an amazing giving person. She was like, what she put her whole self into anything she did. And that was the way she, that was the kind of friend she was. Well, you mentioned in the book that she writes letters to people. She remembers mm. people's names. She, yeah. It's uh, something that most celebrities I'm sure would just have their secretaries take care of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She did that all through her, when she was um, in vaudeville, she had her little book where she wrote down the stage manager's names for such and such theater. Cause she would be, you know, on tour and circle back around, right. Circle back. Yeah. And see the same person. And I'm sure they were like, wow, <laughs> she remembers <laughs> my dog's name. Yeah. <laughs> but she was, <laughs> she was like that to the end of her life. And when she had a resurgence of her popularity after thank or after that's entertainment, um, she, a lot of people wrote to her and she took the time to write nice letters to everybody. And one Christmas, I think she, when she got sick, she said, I had like 80 people that I was writing to. She finally had to write a photocopy, uh, uh-huh. you know, like an update. And she had her secretary photocopy it. And she, she was kind of ashamed of sending it, but you know, she had to do that. Because that was far too much for her at the many time. People to write that many letters. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mentioned my favorite uh, uh, sequences, but now I want you guys to tell me your favorites if they are different than mine. Go ahead. Um, well, I, I, I'm 
I'm going to, I, I love them all, but I'm going to have to go with the uh, Broadway rhythm number at the end of Broadway Melody of 1936. Um, that to me, I, 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 uh, I love that number because it, it just, uh, to us, you know, especially when we watch it, it just showed the achievement at that time and the, the, the wonderful, all of her qualities come through in that number, the joy, the, the exuberance, um, you know, her technical ability, the scope of the, you know, the huge, beautiful setting of the 1930s with all the, the men behind her with the canes. And it's just so classic. And I mean, to me, that says it all about that era when you see that number. And I just love it. It, it just, you know, it makes you smile whenever you see it. it I, I love that. Me too. And I love the sparkly tux. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's why it's on our <laughs> book top cover. <laughs> yeah. On the cover um, of your book. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's a beautiful that, photograph on the cover of your book. I thank think. you. Yeah. yeah. We love it. <laughs> That epitomized her. And I, I agree with Paula. That's my favorite number too. And it, it has to do also with the buildup in the film. Everything, all of the numbers in that big introductory film um, build up to that finale. And it's mm-hmm. just amazing. So when if people that I know haven't seen her or heard of her, that's usually one of the first numbers that I'll show to them. I also like the Mademoiselle Arlette number in the same film where she's dancing without music mm-hmm. because it's so technically amazing. Mm-hmm. And um it's just that's maybe a little technical for most people, but I don't know. They're pretty surprised to see all those sounds coming out of the feet that <laughs> barely move. Yeah. And, yeah. Another number that I really like is the from Ship Ahoy. It's the I'll Take Tallulah number with Buddy Rich, uh-huh. where she's drumming. He, she, she actually is drumming with him mm-hmm. uh, with her feet in the beginning. And then they're tossing around drumsticks. And the whole number is just is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Did she consider herself a musician? She yes. considered herself a percussionist. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's fascinating. Uh, one of her uh, frequent co-stars was Buddy Upson, and I think probably most mm-hmm. people would are shocked to know that Buddy Upson <laughs> was such a, <laughs> a a rubbery dancer because they either know him as Jed Clampett or they know him as uh, Barnaby Jones. Uh, Barnaby yes, Jones, yes. or they yeah. don't know, or they don't know him at all. Um, right. <laughs> and you know, he was. Uh, I know that he was once cast as the Tin Woodman, but he had bad reaction to the makeup, and so he missed out on that part. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he's uh, he's so charming in in the pictures. I just love him. And he is. He's in what, he three is, or four yeah. of her movies, right? <laughs> um. Yeah. Well, three. He was in the first three. Uh huh. Yeah. And uh-huh. they dance. They dance. Well, he danced with Shirley Temple as well. But so I don't yeah. Know. He did, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Captain January. Yeah. yeah. He's very charming. Dancer. But I like in um, Broadway Melody of 1936. He has a Mickey Mouse on his shirt. Uh, yeah. And and in um I think it's Broadway Melody of nineteen thirty eight, he has Donald yeah. Duck. So he must have been yeah. a Disney fan. <laughs> yeah. An early Disney fan. Maybe yeah. they paid him to do that. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Well, uh there, there's there are some great films and, and what a um an interesting life. A little bit uh I want to know a little bit more about her spiritual life. We we mentioned her Sunday school mm-hmm. uh television show, but she she was a seeker spiritually throughout her whole life. Yes. Yes, definitely. Um, she told me once that when she danced, 
she danced for the Lord. She said, I imagine Jesus in the audience. He was the audience. And I said, I know she did that in the 60s. I said, how long did you do that? You know, how early? And she said, oh, from the beginning. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, would would you say that she was a confident person? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Go ahead, Lisa. I said yes. (laughs) Yes. I mean, um, if you want to get an idea of her personality, there there is one interview on YouTube that um, uh, you can go see, um, and it is very much her. And um, (laughs) it it is, you know, to me, she's at that age, she's almost like Auntie Mame because she's just so, you know, kind of, you know, funny stories and she's so full of life and um yeah yeah i mean um you can see her in those early films you see that personality and it's her uh still um i know it's kind of vague but (laughs) when you you were investigating her relationship with her um husband glenn ford Mm -hmm. um you know, she kind of held a lot of the cards in that relationship in terms of the fact that he had secrets that would have ruined his career that she knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she, ne- she never, she never did anything like that. She, no, she yeah, never... she had a lot of opportunity even during the yeah. the divorce. There were those things that she could have shared. She never brought them out. She never. She wasn't vindictive right. at all. She just wanted out. I think and. Yeah. Uh, there what? was even a, a comment by one of the, I don't know if it was Luella Parsons or um, who it was, but they alluded to the fact that being the gracious person that she was, she didn't talk about, you know, saying yeah. in the marriage, which was, it showed you kind of who she was at the time. It um, also showed you that people knew yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, yeah. what was going on too. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Well, it's a fascinating book, and I really love it. It's called Eleanor Powell, Born to Dance. And the authors, my guests, Paula Broussard and Lisa Royer. Thank you, guys, for spending some time with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Andrew Gooley joins me now. He is the managing editor of The Strand magazine, a, a literary magazine that specializes in uh, fiction uh, with mystery, I think, as its main bent, but not necessarily, right? Well, we like to keep people guessing all the time because, you know, I found I found that I subscribe to magazines at times and then I let my subscription lapse if I feel that the magazine's being a little too predictable. Wow. So we've published everything from a short story by Charles Webb, who wrote The Graduate, a science fiction story by Ray Bradbury, uh, an essay by John Steinbeck about McCarthyism. Mm. So we just, we run the full gamut. We always try to keep our readers guessing. And so far that, you know, most of them are very happy about that. Now, uh, just so my listeners know, The Strand magazine is a physical magazine. It's not an online magazine. Exactly, exactly. It's a... it's something tangible in a world of uh, where everything feels like a cryptocurrency. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad of it. The last time we spoke, 
the Strand had published an unpublished story by previously unpublished, now published by James M. Cain. And now you have in your latest issue of, uh, I believe it's previously unpublished, Chimney Capote. Exactly. And that was uh, that was a very, very exciting find because the interesting thing was this was found in the Library of Congress at the same time the James M. Cain story was found. And I did a look through at the indexes like a, about 12 years ago for Cain and Stein, sorry, Cain and Capote. And I only found one James M. Cain story. I'm like, oh, I'm, I've only found it like it's nothing. But that was something. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we published that 10, 12 years ago. And it was called Mommy is a Barfly, which the title alone is, is worth the price of admission. Right. But it was a good story in its own right. And my look, my, my you know, search for something by Truman Capote drew blanks. So this time I was very surprised that I found something by Truman Capote that was not published before. Now, um, what Capote has written fiction, creative nonfiction. Uh, what What is this? It's a short story that is a kind of about the fish out of water scenario of an expat who's an American. She lives in southern Italy. And she's having one of those very, very bad days, which I'm sure all of us have had, where everybody seems to be happy and smiling, and we just want to tell everybody, can you please wipe that smile off of your face? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And she runs across uh, an acquaintance of hers who has had a very, very, very tragic, you know, some tragic events have occurred in her life. And the story is a contrast between the main protagonist who has had a rough go of things. She's been jilted. She's been exploited, but she's not faced the tragedies that the character she comes across has faced. So you have the, the person who's jaded by some bad things that have happened. And then the character she comes across who has had a lot, a tragic loss, but is not as jaded and is trying to form a human connection. So, you know, add some Cinzano wine and you have a, Quite a good, interesting story. Now, when was this written? I would venture to say anywhere from the 50s to the 70s. Uh, We have some clues that Truman Capote visited Venice in the 50s and took a trip to southern Italy in 1950. So he could have written it in the 50s and then abandoned it or the, even the 60s, or it might have been something where he was trying to get back into writing short stories in the 1970s. We know that he only published one short story in the 1970s. I believe it was called Mojave, which was quite, uh, was it really ahead of its time, dealt with the themes of open marriage. This This feels a little more traditional, feels like a little more of the vintage Truman Capote story that you'd find in the 19 late 40s or 50s. And uh, how, how, when you decided to search for Capote, what was it that made you want to look for him? How did you get interested in Truman Capote? Well, you know, Truman Capote's, you know, he's probably the uh, only other celebrity American author besides Ernest Hemingway. And I, I remember reading A Christmas Memory when I was very, very young. And I said to myself, oh, this guy's a fantastic writer. And of course, there's Breakfast at Tiffany's and In Cold Blood. 
and and all of those. But what struck me about him is he was a fantastic stylist. Every single word that he wrote had an impact. Uh, he could say so much with so little. And we always have our, our list of authors who are after to try to find an unpublished work of him. I have to say more often than not, I'm disappointed, but publishing 24 of these works in the past 14 years, I'm not going to complain. <laughs> <laughs> so is there a reason that it was unpublished? I mean, it's not an inferior story. So why do you suppose it was never published? Well, I think writers, you know, writers need editors. And I think if I was his editor and he showed me this story, I would have said, hey, Mr. Capote, you've got to publish this. I can assume that he might have worked on it and said, okay, you know, let me, I'm distracted. Let me work on something else. Or he may have completed it and said to himself, oh, you know, I think I need to do some more work or I think this may not be very good. And uh, when I looked at it and so far, the reaction from everybody else has been overwhelmingly positive. There are other times when writers will come up to you and say, hey, I have this fantastic idea. And then they'll send a manuscript over and I'll say to myself, okay, now I know I, I have a job as an editor because an author, there, there's a disconnect at times from what an author thinks is fantastic and from what an editor and the reading public may like. Well, uh, where can people buy your magazine? Where Where is it available? Generally, it's in uh, most Barnes and Noble bookstores and independent bookstores. And they can also visit our website, strandmag.com. Uh, and they can purchase a copy of the of the magazine over there as well. Right. So uh, obviously, if I go to my local bookstore and they have the Strand magazine, they're going to have this new issue with Truman Capote. But what if I wanted to read that one with the James M. Cain story? Can I get back issues at the Strand Exactly. We have most of our back issues and sometimes we sell out of back issues and then we have to reprint them. But we have most of our back issues, uh, issues over there. There's some with just, you know, fly off the newsstands. Like interesting thing is I didn't think the Raymond Chandler story we published would do so well. And we had to reprint it because it was this, it became a story that people wanted to read. So um, we, we, we try not to disappoint our readers. So you found an unpublished uh, Raymond Chandler or was previously published? But No, the, it, was ne it was never published. And the interesting thing is his nephew, uh, about 20 years ago, brought a bunch of his papers to the Bodleian Library in Oxford in a shoebox. And I remember I was calling one of the... Uh, one of the head librarians, and I said, I, I need you to try to look through all these papers and see if you can find me something. And my, my search is very frustrating because I found nothing. And the, the librarian was getting rather frustrated with me until he said, well, there's something that's labeled, it's all right. I said, I haven't heard of that. He's like, you know, because you haven't heard of it because I'm sure it's not worth anything. So... <laughs> I uh, I asked him to send me a copy of the story, and he sent me a copy. And I, I remember I opened up the envelope, and I was at, I was acting like Caspar uh, Gutman from the Maltese Falcon, saying, <laughs> "I've waited so long for this." And I opened it up, and I found that it was the completed short story, 
And it was a very, very good story, which was kind of an indictment about the healthcare industry, about how greed could at times influence the decision making of, um, of hospitals and physicians. Hmm. And we published that, and that was, uh, and we found out it was never published before. And what? When was it written? At what point? I would say. I would say. I would say probably the 1950s because it was a time when he was dealing with a lot of uh, difficulties in the health of his wife. And as you probably know, and I, I tend to have this tendency, there is no way to relieve stress or frustration from a writer than to just go to that typewriter and say, okay, I'm going to give these people some hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, some of Chandler's later work is... Um not as uh, revered as his earlier things, but I, I happen to think Playback is really a wonderful novel. Are you a fan of Playback? I'm a fan of Playback. I'm a fan of most of his works. I mean, at times, and it's always a difficulty with crime writers, where when something becomes a part of a po part of popular culture, for example, the wisecracking P.I., the crime writer who has to look and say to, to themselves, okay, now how do I make this fresh? How do I make this feel original so that it doesn't feel like I'm spoofing myself? And the great, wonderful thing about Chandler, in fact, Chandler, more than most of the top noir authors, and James M. Cain, as a matter of fact, is they always tried to have something fresh. It never felt like they were trying to recycle old material it always felt funny it always felt offbeat it always felt interesting and there was always this universal message which is why we all love philip marlowe in that the world is a world where many many times good intentions don't amount to much and you always have this person who's struggling to try to try to do a good turn for somebody and the world would be a perfect world if that was reciprocate, reciprocated. But many times it isn't. And that's what makes Chandler interesting. It's that struggle of the knight in shining armor who's just trying to help, trying to navigate himself in a world which is alien to him. And to me, that's why I love Raymond Chandler, because it's just there, at the at the end of the day, there's a message of hope. Unlike Jim Thompson, who I always, always uh, who I love, but yeah. Jim Thompson has a very, very, very dim view of mankind. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's no message of hope. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Andrew Gooley, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And let's remind people that your current issue of The Strand magazine has a brand new unpublished story, previously unpublished, now it's published, story from Jim and Capote and people can find out more at strandmag.com and I'm looking forward to what you come up with next excellent I we have something slated for our 25th anniversary issue so I'll make sure to share that with you when that the time comes in a couple of months oh, I look forward to that well Andrew Gooley thank you so much for spending some time with us on From the Bookshelf thanks Gary great great to chat with you That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and will come back and see us again next time. 
In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf. And she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.